Good morning. Okay, welcome if you're here for the first time. We're glad you're here. I met a number of you that are visiting, and uh, it is humid. It is hot. So thank you guys for turning out for today. It's good to see you. Um, I'm going to give you an update uh, because this saga of uh, the crisis in Kalalau has, a, has legs, and it keeps walking and keeps going. And I know you guys have been praying. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, uh, you, can, you can look at our service from last week. We're on Facebook, and our website is uh, crossroadskauai.org, and you can, uh, you can listen to quite a remarkable story about a young man uh, who's on staff in our Bible college, Will, uh, who broke his neck uh, out at a very remote beach here on Kauai, um, Kalalau Beach, and, and six days later uh, was back at work. And it's a really remarkable story. But for those of you that kind of know what's going on, i got to give you an update because uh, Will, Becky, and myself were invited by the captain and the, uh, the medical team and the doctor and the EMTs and, and the security officers of Pride of America to come for dinner uh, to celebrate. So we did that on Thursday. And we got there, I think, around 5-ish or something like that, 5.30. And they took us on an hour-long tour of the ship. Um, and uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. It's 14 stories high. The thing is massive. We got to see where we, where we got, you know, pulled up on the, on the tender and where we got unloaded onto the deck and took pictures. We got lots of pictures. And, uh, and then we had dinner, and um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a remarkable time. That's all I can say. The dinner was three hours long. Uh, I don't remember the last time I sat at a table for dinner for three hours, but it's like there was such a presence of God and there was such joy at the table that nobody wanted to leave. And we were all tired. Uh, like 10.30 came around is when we finally, we finally left the table. But as we were there, quite a few things kind of came to light, and I want to share some of those things with you because they lend even more of a miraculous nature to what happened at Kalalau. And um, one of the things that we discovered is that uh, that the Coast Guard had nothing to do with that small skiff that became a, um, a delay for the Pride of America in their journey around Kalalau and then going back to Oahu. You remember I thought that the Coast Guard had called in this skiff that had been ab abandoned, that it was a hazard, and that the, um, that the Pride of America had been kind of uh, asked to go get this skiff because it was a maritime hazard. Well, the reality is, is that the Pride of America is the one that spotted that skiff, and the Coast Guard had nothing to do with it. What happened is that there was a gentleman on board on the, on the bridge of the Pride of America who spotted that ship. This guy has uh, a knack for seeing things that other people don't see. In fact, for the last three quarters, he's one employee of the, of the quarter uh, on the ship because of his capacity to see things that other people can't see. And it's prevented the ship from collisions. It's protected uh, other ships from disaster. It's helped save people. A pretty big, important role this guy has. And uh, the thing that was kind of interesting that we discovered is that this man's name is Elijah Huff. Anybody know Elijah Huff here on Kauai? Yeah, he goes to our church. <laughs> this is crazy. He lives on Molokai. Uh, and uh, I think he's in a transition to live on, on the big island. But when he's in port here, this is his church, and Pastor Edwin goes and picks him up. He comes to our men's group, comes to our Wednesday night services, and on occasion is able to come up to our weekend services. And so Elijah Huff was the one that spotted us. And uh, as soon as that happened, um, or he spotted the skiff, and it was about uh, those 45 minutes into this process of trying to get this skiff, find out who it belonged to, finally uh, deciding to pick it up and pull it on board the Pride of America, which they did. And right about the time that they were completing that operation, uh, the chatter between myself and the Coast Guard began to take place about uh, the, uh, the emergency situation that we had on our hands. 
And um, uh, Elijah, of course, was on, on deck, on board. He was at the bridge next to the captain when all this was taking place. And uh, he immediately got on the phone with Pastor Edwin. And he said, Edwin, I think somebody from your church is hurt. And uh, I want your prayer team to start praying. And so our church began to pray before, you know, we even knew what was all happening. Definitely people here uh, didn't know. Uh, but even on the beach, we were just, this thing was unfolding right in front of us, and we already had prayer cover. And it was following that that the captain made a decision after about maybe 30, 20 or 30 minutes of conversation with me trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, the captain uh, made a decision on his own. The Coast Guard had nothing to do with it. The captain made a decision on his own to intervene, hearing all the chatter on the emergency channel between myself and the Coast Guard trying to figure out how we could accomplish some sort of a rescue. And, uh, and Captain Ron Crestina stepped in and said, we'd like to help. And so they made the decision uh, to uh, initiate and to, to come and to actually rescue uh, Will from the beach at Kalalau. And uh, what, what's really interesting is that the captain had very high words and, and uh, well-spoken words for Elijah Huff. And he said, I want you to know that, that Elijah is the one that guided us into the beach. And uh, because it was our flashing lights that Elijah was responsible for because he's got the best eyes on the ship. And so we had all these people involved. And I think I told you last week that, um, that one of the other commercial boats that, were, that was on the water at the time was actually communicating with uh, Ron Crestina, the captain of the Pride of America as well, and talking about conditions and giving him advice. And that person also happens to go to our church. His name is Bob Butler. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, does this get any bigger? Oh, yeah, it gets bigger because I'm not done yet. So we're at the table and we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Lord. And conversation kind of begins with, isn't that remarkable and how fortuitous and how serendipitous and how lucky. And by the time the end of the conversation after three hours, it was God this and God that and, you know, it was the Lord working. About three-quarters of the way through the dinner, my friend, I call him my friend now because we became very close friends very quickly. His name is Dr. Yasser El Sagarni. He was the lead physician. He's the one that uh, examined Will when he came on board and, and uh, did the initial x-rays of Will. He's the one that actually made a decision, despite the x-rays not showing any break or fracture at all, made a decision to collar Will, to send him on a backboard and put him on an ambulance when we got off board, even though myself and others requested that we not do that because uh, Will didn't have any insurance. And you know the rest of the story about the insurance, how remarkable that all was. But, uh, but it was actually Dr. Yasser that made a decision against what the information he even had was, was that, you know what, I, w I want him collared, I want him backboarded, and I, and I want him in an ambulance. Another life-saving uh, decision that took place. And uh, so the doctor and I became friends, and um, we, we, I've invited him to our house, I've invited his wife to our house, and uh, told him, whenever you're in town, call me if you want to go anywhere or see anything, or if you just need to get off the ship. And then we started talking about uh, the ocean, and I, I'm, I'm an avid sailor, I love being out on the ocean. Uh, and so we started talking about that, and he's got a large um, powerboat in, in Alawa Yacht Harbor, and that's where I kind of cut my teeth on sailing, and so we had a lot to talk about, so we were talking, and he says, yes, I'm rebuilding my boat. I want you to come, and I'm saying, let's take it, and let's motor it over to Kauai and go back to Kalalau and take our wives, you know? We'll have a big party over there, and so we're talking about all these things and making plans to get together, and about three-quarters of the way through the meal, he leans over to me, and he says, I have something interesting I want to share with you. And he says, I'm not sure how you'll feel. And I said, well, well you know, share anything you'd like to. And he says, I, I, uh, I want you to know and, uh, and I want to share with you that I'm Muslim. And I said, I, I figured you were. And so I said, and? 
And, uh, and, and he, and he kind of sat back and he says, well, actually, there's more. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yes. And he said, what you are in Christianity is what I am in Islam. And it, it, you know, it took me a, a minute, a second to compute that. And I said, are you an imam? And he says, yes, I'm an imam in the Muslim faith. And I'm, now my mind is just blown out of the water. I'm just like, is this incredible? This man and myself and our families are, I feel like he's my brother. And of course, our doctrines are so different. We didn't have to talk about it. We're not dumb. You know, we're worlds apart on doctrine and on the nature of, and the person of God. But in the midst of this incredible adventure, we're talking about a loving father that will send a ship and turn it around for one person who calls on his name. And the, the God of Islam is, is harsh and hard and demanding and exacting. And in the midst of just living out our life and communicating the gospel and communicating the love of Christ and expressing our appreciation for this team of people, it was just a beautiful time. We took gifts to them. Uh, we took lays. Um, oh, I got to tell you one other thing. We went down to J.C. Flowers. You guys buy flowers at J.C. Flowers? Go, go down and shop there. Uh, wonderful couple that owns it. Got to pray with them. And uh, it's a long story, but uh, I've known them for years, but I've not, I don't really know them. And they were both there. I got to spend time with them. I got to pray with them. And then I left and I told them, I said, because after just about the time I'm leaving, they said, you're the pastor up at Crossroads, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I am. And, uh, and they said, um, you know, we, we read the article about you and Will. I mean, they even knew his name, Will, you know? It's like, wow, this is amazing. And so I got to pray with them. And then afterwards, I got to tell them, you know, these lays that we just bought from you, these are gifts, and I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to tell the people uh, that we're giving these lays to that they came from your lay shop. Thank you for being a part of this journey, you know. And it was just, it's just like all these doors opening up. And so Dr. El Gurney shares these things with me, and, I'm, and that, that moment of, of recognition for both of us, the really miraculous nature that there was such a bond between us. And the only thing I can tell you, it's, it's, it's an epic life. It's an epic journey. And the only thing I can say is, I don't know where this is all going to lead. I don't think I'm going to become a Muslim. I can tell you that. That's probably, that's probably not going to happen. And, I, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be so bold as to say that he's going to become a Christian. But God has put this man and myself together for a reason. And all I know is that my primary objective is to, is to proclaim the gospel and the person and nature of Jesus Christ with everything in me. And so this, this incredible journey continues. The, uh, the administrator for, um, uh, for the medical unit uh, said to us at the end of all this, we got up and we were all hugging each other and expressing our affection for each other and appreciation for the time. And, and, um, and she said, you know, I've never been to anything like this. I've, I've just never experienced something like this. The, the, the amount of love and, and the peace and the joy that has happened here at this meal has been remarkable. And I thought to myself, isn't that God to work in that way? where walls come down and celebrations take place and hearts are changed and moved. And all week long, I've had the opportunity uh, and many of the Bible college students have had the opportunity and possibly some of you to share about this story uh, because of the connections with this church. And, you know, we're, we're not anything special, but God is very special and he's got a special message for us to share and it's really about this epic life. So uh, this morning, I want you to turn to the book of... Um, Roman of uh, Matthew chapter 28, and I want to talk about the epic life today. I, uh, I love that word. I love that phrase. The Bible College knows that because I talk about it all the time, and, uh, and you probably know it if you've been in this church any, any length of time. 
I believe that God is offering us the adventure of a lifetime. And I call it the epic life. And so I want to talk to you about that today as it relates to uh, the situation with, uh, with the crisis at Kalalau, but also I want to talk to you about it as it relates to your life uh, on a personal level. Matthew chapter 28 in verse 18. Jesus has right, right, uh, been uh, raised from the dead. Uh, he has met with the disciples. He has comforted them and given them vision. He's clarified his mission. And now he clarifies the mission for the church and for these men who have dedicated their lives to being followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. This is referred to as the Great Commission of the church. If, uh, if you have been around this fellowship any length of time, you know that we have three objectives. And they, they make up the mission statement for our fellowship. Our first objective is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's our first objective. It's the number one commandment in the Bible. It, it uh, spans the Old and New Testament. And the second commandment, as Jesus said, is like it, that we would love one another. Not just loving the body of Christ, but we would love everyone, that we would do everything that we can to be an expression, a fragrant aroma of the love of God. And the third thing that is a, a mission statement, part of our mission statement, is making disciples. Because making disciples is the fullest expression of obedience to Christ because this is his command for us but it's also the fullest expression of love that a person could ever demonstrate to another person is the communication of the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the friendship with a purpose of mentoring another person in their walk so that they can become fruitful, abundant, living believers in Jesus Christ. And so this is the calling that we have. But as I was thinking about this last night, I was thinking, wow, we've got a contrast here and we've got a choice. We, we can buy into what I refer to as, uh, just as of last night, because it just came to me, as the epic lie that Satan holds out to us, that something that we can do here on the planet will satisfy the deepest need of our heart to live an epic life, or we're going to live the epic life based on what God says. And it really comes down between two voices. It's either the voice of the enemy or the voice of God himself. And we're either going to live the epic lie or we're going to live the epic life. What I find so interesting about, um, about Christianity, having been a part of it for 35 years now, and having been in the church, and having traveled, and been in many other churches, and been to lots of pastors' conferences of every stripe and denomination, one of the things that I find very interesting is that, that um, there are, it's not infrequent to, to run into Christians, and I would have to say also pastors, who are not living the epic life, who are, they started out well, they were very excited about God. They were completely just blown away by the forgiveness of their sins and this new relationship with God and being introduced as a, as a son or daughter of God and having this incredible opportunity to have communion with God and have God speak to us and have God reveal himself to us and then actually to be able to tell other people about it. But then somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way, we were drawn into the idea and the lie that, that somehow the epic life wasn't really so much about God as it was about getting God to get excited about our epic plan for our life. And so we bought houses and we got married and we have children and we buy pets and we get hobbies and we go on vacations 
and we save money so we can go out to special dinners, and we treat ourselves to special coffees and special drinks because they make us feel better about ourselves and about the day. I mean, we even go to restaurants that nobody really wants to go to all the time when we're out of town because they make us feel comfortable because they're familiar. So people from across the globe will come here and they'll go into McDonald's. It's like, can't you eat that somewhere else? I mean, you can get a McDonald's hamburger anytime. I'm not against you eating McDonald's, by the way. But I I just find it interesting that families will go and and even couples will go. There are all these local food, all these local restaurateurs and people that are making these incredible dishes, but we find ourselves going back to these things that are familiar because it helps us to feel safe and it gives us a sense that we're living a, a meaningful life. And so I find people that, uh, and even I've experienced this myself, so I'm not talking about other people, I'm talking about me. There have been times in my life where I started out where I was just latching hold of everything that God had for me. Couldn't get enough of him. Couldn't be at church enough. Couldn't talk about him enough. Loved communicating the life-changing message of God. And then somewhere along the way, and I'll tell you where the somewhere started for me, the somewhere started for me when I got involved in, in doing church when it moved from this vibrant walk with God to being responsible for doing church and keeping the wheels of the, of the organization moving and spinning and putting in long hours and thinking that that was the epic life. But all I felt was worn out, tired, discouraged. I, I started feeling irritated with people that wouldn't help. Any of you guys that are servants of God for a while in church, you know what that's like. It's suddenly it's like, why isn't anyone else helping? Why do they just stand around and talk? Can't they see what needs to be done? And I started having all these feelings uh, take place in my heart, and I was in ministry. I was a staff person. And I, and I thought, whatever happened to the days where I was just so joyful about walking with God? And now I find myself grinding through this experience, and I thought this was supposed to be the epic life, was serving the Lord. And the elephant in the room in church is this is that a lot of us believe and know that the Bible says that when we walk with Christ, he's inviting us into an abundant life. But in practice and in experience, a lot of times we're, we're slogging through and we're, we're, we're maintaining the spiritual disciplines and we're trying to be good and trying to, trying to honor God. But somewhere along the line, we have redefined what epic is. And we've thought that epic might be here somewhere on the planet. You know, there's another person that that had that same problem and made the same mistake that I made. Somebody that's a lot smarter and wiser than me. His name is Solomon. He's the son of King David. And God gave him wisdom. Why did God give him wisdom? Because Solomon was living an epic life at the beginning and God called him and he says, I see your heart, I see your passion, I see your love for me and I'm raising you up to be my shepherd of my people. And Solomon said, whoa, this is just too epic. I can't take it, you know. I don't know what to do. God, I have a prayer request. Help me know how to do this your way. And God said, wow, because you didn't ask for riches and you didn't ask for long life and you didn't ask for the defeat of your enemies, I'm going to give you wisdom to lead my people and it's going to be epic. And then on top of that, I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you wisdom and riches and power and the conquering of your enemies and fame, everything that you want, I'm going to give it to you because you put me first and you put the epic life that I'm presenting to you above all other life and the epic lie of the enemy. And so Solomon made a decision. But, you know, it's interesting. 
He started out that way, but somewhere along the line, he got distracted. And about 30 years, 30 plus years of his life became a transition from the epic life that God had presented him with and offered to him to the lie of the epic lie of Satan. And he started out well, but he got distracted. And then he started building homes and he started building infrastructure within Israel that was magnificent. And he became a student of biology and science and became the wisest man on the planet. He became a, a student of literature and art and poetry. And he wrote the most incredible poetry on the planet ever. He became a person that was known uh, for the riches and the opulence of his life. He had anything and everything he wanted. He had as many women as, as, as any man could ever. I mean, talking about 72 virgins, I mean, m multiply that by 10, and that's where Solomon was. He had chariots and horses. I mean, he was a connoisseur of the best of the best of the best of the best. But it was empty for him. And this is what he said in chapter 1, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, Solomon. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Wisdom is meaningless. Pleasures are meaningless. Work is meaningless. Advancement is meaningless. Wealth is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I read these words as a, as a new believer, probably about maybe three or four months into my Christian life, and I thought, why is this in the Bible? This guy is like, he needs to go see a psychiatrist. He needs, he needs a couch somewhere. He needs friends. What's wrong with this guy? I didn't have any background. I didn't really understand who even the writer was. I just thought, what a pathetic soul. But the, the, the reason we've got the wisest man on the planet living such a pathetic life is because he believed the epic lie instead of continuing to live the epic life. The epic life ha happens to be part of this journey of walking with God. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. And it kind of ties in so beautifully with what even happened last week on the rescue of Kalalau because I want to talk to you about the greatest rescue mission of all time. That greatest rescue mission is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The objective, if you're following along in your notes, is to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. Jesus says in Luke 19.10 uh, 19, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look for them and look after them. So that's God's heart. That is the mission. That's the calling of every believer. The plan was to redeem a people for himself from sin. That plan began before time began, but in our understanding of time, it began in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says that the enemy will strike at the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah will crush the head of Satan. And that's the beginning of this gospel presentation of the power of God to save. It fast forwards to Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 where we're told that Jesus is going to be born and that he will be called uh, the son of God and his name will be Jesus because he will save people from their sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is the mission. When I think about the, the life of Christ, I think, uh, you know, what, what, how can we define epic except to say Jesus? Three and a half years of ministry, he packed more into three and a half years than, than you know, uh, churches across the globe can pile into one uh, lifetime. John, at the end of his gospel, says he did so much, and there's so many stories and so, so many miracles 
that if we were to write them all down, there wouldn't be enough room in the, in the world for the number of volumes of books to contain the epicness of this epic life that Jesus lived. So Jesus had this heart. God the Father initiated this plan to redeem people, and the strategy was to send Christ his Son to ransom and save us from our sin. I, I learn a lot from what the Bible not only says, but what it doesn't say. And so when I read a passage, I'm, I'm looking at it and saying, wow, that is, that's helpful. I know that, I know that. Now, why didn't it say this? And why isn't this here? And this must be significant. Now, my thoughts aren't Scripture, but they're helpful to me. But I want to share some things that are clear from Scripture that, that Jesus Christ didn't aim at in order to live an epic life. The first thing that I'll note, and you've got these uh, Scriptures in your uh, in your notes here, but I'll, I'll reference them. I won't read them verbatim. But the first thing is that he didn't seek to please himself. John 5 and Romans 15 tells us that Jesus came to seek the, the pleasure of the Father. That was his number one goal, was the pleasure of God. So he didn't seek to please himself, and yet everything in our culture tells us that that is the way to experience the epic life. Please yourself. He did not seek his own glory, but he actually sought the glory of the Father in Romans chapter 8 in uh, John chapter 8. So he was seeking the glory of another, and yet everything in us tells us don't seek the glory of another person unless it brings glory to you in a sideways way. And so everything in us wants to draw attention to ourselves, however subtly it might be, but Jesus says, I'm not interested in drawing attention to myself. I'm interested in drawing attention to God. The third thing that I find interesting is that Jesus didn't seek his own will. Again, he says over and over, I seek to do the will of my Father. I don't speak except that God tells me what to say. I don't act except God tells me what to do. Everything that I do and everything I say comes from the Father. In fact, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I am, a, I am, I am the embodiment of the expressive will and purpose of God. And yet all the fighting and all the arguing and all the marriage problems and all the discord that we've got in our life has one source. It's our asserting our will, having to have our way, demanding, being sometimes unreasonable, and yet Jesus didn't seek his own will. In 1 Corinthians 10, that we didn't, it says he didn't even seek his own good. How could he seek his own good? He was going to the cross. How can someone that's seeking their own good and their own safety and their own benefit be living for themselves when their mission is to go to the cross? He didn't seek to do his own thing, John 17 tells us, that he did exactly what the Father told him to do. He didn't seek to become famous. In, in, in Philippians chapter 2, he said that he actually humbled himself and he took on human flesh and became obedient to the Father and went to the cross. That's not a person that's looking to be famous. And he didn't seek to become rich. Although he had access to everything and owned it all, he lived a very humble life and became poor that we might become rich. And I don't think any of us would ever challenge the idea or the concept that Jesus lived the most epic life that man has ever known. There can't be a more epic, adventurous life than that. And when you look at the things that he didn't aim at, he didn't please himself, he didn't seek his own glory or his own will or his own good or his own thing or to be famous or to be rich, this is everything that the epic lie is telling us. If we gather and collect and achieve these things that will have value and significance and importance and it is a lie. We don't need to just hear it from Solomon. All you have to do is, is read the newspaper and read biographies of, of wealthy people, and they'll tell you that, 
that these things don't lead to an epic life. In fact, sometimes they destroy the possibility of life itself. So Jesus came to fulfill his mission, and he was undeterred, he was unafraid, he was unstoppable, and he wouldn't rest until he was able to say, it is finished. And so in three and a half years of ministry, he lived a very large life. But he didn't just live it for himself. The Bible tells us that he invited others to the mission. In Matthew 4, 19, he said, come follow me, and I'll teach you the epic life. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. But what he was really saying is, is that this is an unbelievable life. Why would you settle for the paltry offerings of the world? Why would you settle for the epic lie of the enemy instead of the epic life that's in me? And so he invites them into this mission. And the objective was to enlist others for the mission, to multiply himself, and the strategy was to impart the vision to a few and train them. And he says, come, follow me. And he says it's more important than family when he said, let the dead bury their dead. He said it's more important than security when he saw Levi, the tax collector, in his plush and cushy job and said, leave that and follow me. It's more important than career when Jesus told the disciples and Peter and James and John, leave your fishing nets and your boats and your vocation and follow me. And it's more important than money when Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and with a heart of love said, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have and come follow me. Now, I'm not saying that these commands are for you in particular, but I am saying that you have a choice, and I've got a choice every single day. Am I going to try to get God to get excited about my plan and my life and my agenda? That's, a, that's the way, honestly, a lot of Christians live. We've been kind of programmed to live that way even in the church, is that we believe the right doctrine, we consent to the right theology, we embrace the right type of worship songs, and, and we, we actually you know, are participants in the body of Christ. But the idea of us individually experiencing this epic journey is, is oftentimes missing in people's lives. And what it's replaced with is, God, I go to church. God, I read my Bible. God, bless me, favor me. I've got an idea for my life, and I'd like you to make it work out. I'd like smooth sailing. I'd like you to answer my prayer. In fact, God, when you don't answer my prayer, I get kind of a little hostile and a little bit discouraged, and I get kind of feeling like, how come you're not rescuing me? How come you're not doing what I want? How come you're not blessing what I want? And everything revolves around my life and my agenda and my dream versus what God says in the scriptures is that we have been bought at a price and we don't belong to ourselves anymore i.e. that our plans are not the agenda anymore, our dreams are not the agenda anymore, our vision for our life isn't the agenda anymore. Instead, we are now servants of the Most High God, and we have the privilege of coming under his leadership and saying, what would you like me to do? I am completely ready here, reporting for duty, to do your will and to fulfill your kingdom's purpose and to bring you pleasure. And instead, we try to get God excited about the epic lie. What I find so interesting about this is that it has to do with, this epic lie has to do with the things that I mentioned earlier that people get excited about, that Solomon got excited about, that Bill Gates gets excited about. You, you put in the rich person's name that people get excited about. They get excited about property and material goods, and if I get married, that will make me feel fulfilled. And now that I'm married, I'm still not fulfilled. If I have babies, that will make me feel fulfilled. And then we have babies, and we realize that was a mistake. 
you know, to think that, that they would somehow fulfill us. It's fulfilling, but if, if you want that baby to be everything for you, all you have to do is just listen to young moms and the struggle it is when they, they, they don't have much sleep and how they're just like, I just die to be able to have one night of sleep, you know? And, and it's totally understandable, but a baby or children won't bring all of that for you. And then when you are doing all this stuff and you're in the rat race and you've got your vocation because you thought that would fulfill you, but it actually is driving you into the ground, and, and then, then you think, I've got to have a vacation. Vacations will fulfill me and travel will fulfill me, but that doesn't work. And then you think, I'm just going to eat. I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm depressed. Life is not, I'm going to just go to, well, Becky and I did. We went and got Haagen-Dazs this week. Two for seven. That's a lot, that's a lot of money, but it's like we thought, we're tired. We're going to go reward ourselves. And so we got ourselves those little pints of Haagen-Dazs and we ate them. <laughs> and so we keep thinking that there's something out there and yet, we know from Scripture, and we know from the reports and the news articles and the books on other people that have lived that life that it's a dead end, and yet we, we blindly keep trudging forward, thinking that somehow we're going we're gonna to find it outside of God. I, I want to share something that may be a little disturbing to some of you. I hope not. I hope it'll be encouraging, because these very things that we thought would bring us pleasure actually have a very important role in the kingdom of God. Let me talk about spouse. And Bible college, this is good for you, especially those of you that aren't married and others that aren't married here. Having a desire for a spouse is a God-given gift. It's a, it's a, a blessing. It's, it's just a massive, wonderful experience to be able to be in a loving relationship with a person that God has ordained for you and God has brought to you. And so when that's operating properly, it's an incredible experience. When it's not operating properly, it's a disaster and a nightmare. And I would tell you what the difference is, because God actually maps out for us what, what the purpose of marriage is for. But our understanding of the purpose of marriage is that I want to be with him or I want to be with her because I'm lonely. I want to be with him or with her because I feel complete when I'm with that person. I want to be with that person because they'll love me unconditionally. I want to be with them because I don't want to sit at home anymore and have lonely nights. I want to be with a person because I want intimacy. So we have all of these things that, that are a part of that, but that's not anything to do with what God says the purpose of marriage is. Genesis tells us what marriage is for. Marriage is so that the, that the husband, the man, and the woman won't be lonely and so that they will have a helpmeet. A helpmeet for what? What was man and woman? What was their command? What was their calling to do? Somebody tell me. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the mission. That was the epic life. And somewhere along the line, we said, let's pass on that. Let's just get to the stuff that meets my needs. And then, of course, anytime we fixate on something that is not, is not appropriately harnessed for the kingdom of God, it becomes an idol for us and it destroys us. And that's why so many people struggle in their marriages is because their, their marriage has become an idol. And now they're looking at the person and says, you don't meet my needs anymore. I don't love you anymore. I don't have a feelings of affection for you anymore. You're not the person I married. You know, and it's all about me, 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 instead of how has God ordained our marriage to be able to advance his kingdom for his glory? Now, when you harness that and you get the right perspective of what marriage is about, then everything makes sense. 
And then you've got a common cause that unites you through thick and thin and helps you work through the problems of your brokenness and sometimes the selfishness and the, you know, the things that are just a part of our continuation of, of being fallen creatures, redeemed by Christ but not complete yet. And so when, when a person says, I will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and my marriage will be first and foremost for the expansion of that kingdom, and therefore, I will pray with my spouse. I will study the Bible with my spouse. We will serve the Lord together. Then suddenly, that becomes a unifying factor that changes the game completely, and it changes marriage. Have you ever wondered why the Bible says in, in, in the prophecies that there will be no marriage in heaven? And a lot of people get all upset about that. It's like, what? I don't want to go then. I don't want to be in heaven if I can't be with my spouse. But then it helps you understand that that this spousal relationship is temporal. Why is it temporal? Because the work is temporal. What's the work? It's the reconciliation of the lost to Christ. That's the work. And God gives us a partner to do it with. And when that happens, then you've got something powerful and special and something lasting. And then the thing you're not even aiming at, which is the the unity and the love and the affection and all of that stuff comes along the way. I've told Becky before when we've... um, been talking or praying and and you know it comes up or we talk about you know what happens if one of us dies but you know when you get to our age it's like we talk about that more and more it's like well what if i died tomorrow um it kind of sounds morose um but we have we we have a discussion like that and the thing that first thing that comes to my mind is i don't think i'd want to get married again because what we have after 28 years, I just, it's just a daunting thought to, you know, to put my hand out and say, hi, I'm Bob. I mean, that's just completely daunting to me to try to achieve and to get to the place where, where Becky and I are now in our relationship, which is like we're just a, we're, we're a couple, but we're a force to be reckoned with because of Jesus Christ. And I need her, and she needs me, and we're moving forward with God, and we're living the epic life. How about children? Well, a lot of people want children because they sometimes are dissatisfied in their marriage. It's not always the case, but sometimes, sometimes just children happen, and sometimes they're planned, and sometimes it's like, oh, I can't wait to have my baby. You know, I can't wait to cuddle the baby. I can't wait to address the baby. I can't wait to, you know, all of those things. And, and it's, but, but the fact is, is that from a biblical standpoint, is that God has actually given you the process and the ability and the privilege of procreating so that you can fill the kingdom with more worshipers for God. Not just this kingdom, but the eternal kingdom of God. And along the way, if you focus on that and don't turn your children into little idols, then God will help you to actually train them up in the Lord to be a force to be reckoned with. And your house, something that's kind of the dream of everybody. Well, I'll get married and then I want to buy a house. Why do we want to buy a house? Because it gives us a sense of achievement, like we're becoming something, like we're growing up, like we're, like we're arriving. And I've seen, a house, I've seen houses bury Christians over and over and over. They're walking really well with the Lord until they get the house. And then they're just gone because they've got, you know, five years of remodeling to do. And they're too tired to, to worship God, too tired to serve Him anymore. But you know what a house is for? A house is for hospitality. A house is for carrying out the mission. A house is a place to rest so that you can have energy to carry out the mission uh, the following day. A house is a place of ministry. Why do we have jobs? Well, a lot of us think we have jobs because it'll make us feel good about ourselves, but we have jobs so we can pay our bills, so that we can keep on this rat race and on this, on this hamster wheel. 
But the reason you have a job and why you have that particular platform, like no one other, you've got a fingerprint that's unique to you, the relationships, the job, the, the talents, the skills, the education, the background, all of these things have been designed by God so that you can have a platform for living the epic life and that you can be an ambassador of this incredible message of reconciliation. And so instead of being disappointed with your job or your boss or, or the circumstances or your fellow employees and just kind of like, I hate my job, I can't wait till the weekend's here and just grinding it out and, you know, some days are better than others, but boy, it's just, you know, oh, if I just could retire. Oh, if I could just, you know, quit my job. I'm going to go on welfare. I, I want to do anything to get out of my job. I mean, if I could just not work at all, that would be the epic life but you see that you've been designed by God and sent into your particular field of ministry by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I would suggest to you, the harder your situation is, the more difficult it is, the more challenging it is, is the greater the platform is for you to be an ambassador of the message of reconciliation because you, come, you become a person of, of import and significance because people see how you're responding under pressure and when things aren't going well and when you're not treated fairly. And they see the fragrance of Christ coming out of you as you recognize that this job is not your identity, but this job is a platform for the epic life in pointing to Christ and being his servant. And even food becomes not an idol and something that you do to somehow pleasure yourself, but it becomes an avenue of enjoyment that God has given you to partake in things that are delicious. And we're going to do that this afternoon, by the way, so... Uh, we're all about partaking in this church when it comes to that. We have a great time together. You know, I, I want to say something before we, we kind of go on and I move through the rest of this fairly quickly is that it sounds kind of utilitarian. I mean, Bob, the way you're talking about being married, it sounds like, you know, like, I don't know, like the military kind of, you know? And talking about your kids like they're pawns in this great scheme and this great, you know, spiritual challenge in the kingdom and talking about your material goods like they're simply utilitarian servants of some larger objective and you know what I want to say absolutely true I'm guilty of all of that but I want to tell you something that I've been a Christian for 35 years and I'm not bored I've been a Christian for 35 years and I'm not I don't feel like I'm slogging through the Christian life I feel like it's getting better and more incredible with every passing day I'm, I'm thrilled to be a Christian I'm thrilled to be forgiven of my sins. I'm thrilled to be able to even talk to you about this stuff. I'm thrilled to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thrilled to have a, a nightmare of a situation on Kalalau Beach, on the most remote beach on this planet, on this island at least, and, and then to be able to see the glory of God somehow take this tragedy and turn it into something that is a point of incredible delight. How does God do it? How is God able to do it? Well, he's able to do it because he says that God works all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't do that with everybody. He says for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He's saying for those that love him and are called to this epic life and buy into the agenda, not of the epic lie, but the epic life, he says I'm going to work everything for the good. And it's his promise to us. So here's the crazy, crazy thing about the epic life. If you will surrender your heart, your life, your agenda, and get on board with God's heart, God's life, God's agenda in Christ, then he will do for you what he did for Solomon. 
he will not only give you success in your endeavor in being a follower of Christ, but he will give you all the things that you didn't even ask for. He will take care of your family. He will give you material goods. He will take care of your basic needs. And what I found, at least, most frequently is he will go far and beyond in blessing you and favoring you so that you, in turn, can be a blessing to other people. If you want to aim at the epic lie, you will fail and you will be frustrated and you may be tempted to blame God that he hasn't fulfilled his end of the bargain. But God never called you to live the epic lie. He called you to live the epic life. And if you make a decision to do that, then I can guarantee you, because the word guarantees you, that you will live the abundant life. And these small things that you used to aim at, like a house and a car and goods and vacations and everything, those are going to take a back seat. They're still in your life, but they're going to have their proper perspective because they are going to serve the ultimate purpose of being a part of this great adventure of the Great Commission. And so for the training of this mission, Jesus in Matthew 10 sends out the 12, and then later he sends out the 72. And these guys who have lived a pretty epic life, I'm sure they've had some amazing adventures in their lifetime, they come back and they're just so blown away. We raised the dead. We healed people. We cast out demons, and they're doing all this stuff. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And what Jesus is saying is, you think that's epic? You know what's really epic is that you're in my kingdom. But these guys are experiencing a, a taste of this epic life and being sent out as Christ's ambassadors. And so the objective was to find the lost and preach the good news. That's what they did. The plan was to send out the disciples on short-term missions, which they did. And the strategy was to give these disciples authority, instruction, and supervision, which Jesus gave them. And then in Matthew 28, Jesus gives this great commission. And he says, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so God invites the church, and he invites the, every believer into this commission. The objective is to make disciples of all nations. The plan is to transfer the mantle of ministry from the disciples to the disciples to the disciples to the disciples. And as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2, he says, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men or women who will also be qualified to teach others. It's the passing on of this great commission. And the strategy is to launch a cycle of multiplication. And our mission is to be ambassadors and our mission is to, to be disciple-makers, and that timetable goes on until Christ's return. Are you bored? Are you tired of this journey? Are you kind of slogging through? Are you finding yourself kind of disappointed? And, and, and honestly, the elephant in the room for the Christian community often is, how come it's not all that? And I'll share with you that it's not enough to be spectators of watching other people live this life because God has called you in personally to experience it. And you can have as much of this life as you want. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that you have, you have adventures that are waiting for you. You've got appointments. You've got good works, the Bible says, that God has ordained before time began that you should walk in them. That means God's got stuff for you this afternoon. Now, the thing is, is if you believe the epic lie, you're going to miss it because you're going to be focused on your agenda versus God's agenda. You won't even see it. 
You won't recognize it when it hits you in the face. It's, not even, it's right there, and you see it as a problem. And God says, this is an opportunity. Take it. Grab it. Live for me. Speak for me. Love through me. Communicate my heart of reconciliation and this ambassadorship of this message of life. And we're like, how do I get out of this? How can I fix this? God, fix this. How come, God, you're not listening? We're, we're missing these adventures all the time, every day. My contention is the Holy Spirit is speaking to us constantly, but we not listen. My contention is that the epic life is right in front of us all the time with our spouse, with our children, with ministry, all the time, every day. It's going to happen all day long today. You can do that epic life with each other. You can do it with people that aren't believers. Everywhere you go, you become the fragrant aroma of Christ and you become a partner in this grand work of God or not. And we're at a crossroads every time we have any encounter, any phone call, any experience. You can pray with people every time you encounter people. You can love people in Jesus' name. You can, you can encourage people. You can give a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or you can get a, give a word of scripture. You can lay out the gospel to people. You can tell them about life eternal or you can tell them about what God did on Kalalau Beach about 10 days ago or two weeks ago. It's like it's right in front of us. And so my encouragement to you, church, is that avoid the things that, that distract us Avoid trying to lead a balanced life where you want God but not too much of God. Avoid uh, aiming at security where, where everything that matters is that you are safe and secure. Avoid being lazy in your walk with God. Avoid being uh, a bereft of direction because you don't pray and you're not asking God. Avoid, uh, avoid being distracted by the things that you think will lead to life when God already says these don't lead to life. Don't turn into an idol the blessings of God. But let them serve the purpose of God. And don't let disobedience to this great commission cause you to live a life uh, like Solomon for such a long period of time for decades. I will tell you that it turned out well for Solomon. Solomon didn't stay on that track. In the later years of his life, he made a decision after coming to this conclusion in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is what he says. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 in the closing verses of this very depressing book, he says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of man. I'm not sure that it's that common that people get derailed and get back on track after such a long hiatus away from God. But we have an example of it, and so it can happen. I don't know where you are in your walk with God. Frankly, I... I, um, I know most of you pretty well. Some of you are new friends today, but I will say this, that this is a, a church that is, by and large, living this epic life. And so I'm not preaching to you and saying you should do this. I'm, I'm, I'm saying we are doing this. Let's excel at this. Let's give everything we've got to this. Let's not hold back. Let's not be safe. Let's go big. Let, you know, we don't get to live this life once. Let's stop being worried about what people think of us. Let's stop being concerned about how we come across. I mean, I'm not saying being obnoxious. I'm not saying being rude. I'm saying let's be bold with the love of Christ. Let's be generous with this message of life-transforming power of Christ. Let's give it away. Let, let's be the first to love. Let's be the first to reach out. Let's be the person to initiate. Let's let God use our platform for his glory, such as it is. And if we're willing to do that, 
I can guarantee you that your life will never be the same. The reason I can say that is that even as a pastor, I found myself slogging through the meaninglessness of ministry until I finally came to my senses and realized that this is all wrong. And I have sequestered myself off in the church and I'm doing all this stuff, but I'm not engaging in this mission. And so I decided I was going to learn how to become a disciple maker. I decided I was going to learn how to win people to Christ. I decided I was going to learn how to mentor people and extend my friendship with a purpose to other people in my life. And I really honestly didn't know what I was doing. It's been a long journey, but it's been life-changing. And what I can tell you is that I've got a long way to go and Becky and I as a team have a long way to go. We're far from experts on this. We're, we're in a process ourselves, but we've learned some things along the way. And all I can tell you is in a million years, I'd never, 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 never go back to just being a hardworking Christian. Never. And give up the epic life? Are you kidding me? You'd have to kill me. I wouldn't want to go back. I would be depressed. It would be like, it'd be like going to heaven and then being thrown back on the planet again and saying, oops, not yet. It's like, I'm done. The epic life is awesome. Don't let the epic lie cause you to miss the epic life. We have a discipleship conference coming up this week. It's our first conference that we've ever had in discipleship because we teach discipleship in our church all the time. Every man having a man that they're mentoring and helping. Every woman having a woman that they're mentoring and helping. And you're you're, you're giving life. You're doing exactly what the Bible says. You're multiplying yourself. You're filling the earth one person at a time with worshipers of God. But this conference this weekend, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'd love to have every one of you here. I know not all of you can come. You've got work. You've got commitments, responsibilities. Come to what you can. It builds on each other, but everyone, every one of these sessions is independent, and you'll be blessed by them. But I want to I raise up an army of men and women who aren't just serving and grinding it out. I want you to know epic. I want you to live epic. I want you to taste epic. And so many of you already are, and many of you are way beyond where I am. But let's walk in this together and experience this incredible life that God has given us and not be victims and, um, and perpetrators of crimes against ourselves by simply thinking that the Christian life is just a lot of hard work and a lot of discipline and a lot of effort and, and, and just a little bit of blessing. And oh, thank God we've got heaven to look forward to. That's not all we have to look forward to. This life is meant to be lived to the fullest. It's meant to be epic. Even in the midst of the hardship, even in the midst of the challenge, even in the midst of the persecution, even in the midst of the confusion and the, and the challenges across the planet, across the globe that are taking place right now, this is our finest moment. This is our finest hour if we can take our eyes off our agenda and put it on the king's agenda. Lord, we thank you for this time and your word this morning and, and I pray that you'd stir up our hearts, Lord. God, I'm so thankful that you are, are teaching us and showing us, God, that you've got something so much greater for us than simply slogging through the Christian life and trying to get along. Our marriages have become almost idols for us and children and our house and our stuff, and it all, it all keeps us from the work instead of promotes the work. All these things should promote the work of God. It should promote the love of God. It should promote the evangelization of the lost. It should promote being a fragrant aroma of Christ wherever we go. Father, forgive us 
for making these things idols and allowing these things that were meant to be blessings to further the work of God become the very thing that stumbles us and keeps us from winning our race. And so God, I pray today that you would set us free to be able to live this life you called us to. Bless every man and woman. God, thank you for their heart for you. Thank you for loving them. Thank you that you've inscribed their name on your hand. God, thank you that you know everything about them. God, thank you that you have pleasure in them because of the finished work of Christ. Thank you, God, that you are moving them by your spirit, even being here at this service, to experience this life that comes in Christ and is found in your service. God, I pray that you would work. I pray that you would move us. I pray that you would release us and free us and that we would come to the same conclusion that Solomon came to. This is the conclusion of the matter. Serve and obey. Serve and obey the agenda of the king. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and um, we'll sing and close with worship. Remember, we've got a big party down at uh, under the bridge, uh, under the Wailua Bridge. Uh, if you come, go to the store, get something to grill, uh, get a side dish or make a side dish. Come down, bring your water toys, bring some chairs, and uh, we're going to have a big party down there. Everyone's welcome. It's for newcomers, but it's for everybody, the whole church. So join us down there at 1 o'clock. God bless you.